You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about transgender and gender diverse youth. Joining me is Dr. Sarah Hart Unger, who is an endocrinologist at Joe DiMaggio's Children's Hospital and an associate program director of their residency program. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be on the podcast. So just to give a little bit of background, so the AAP released a policy statement in October of 2018 called Ensuring Comprehensive Care and Support for Transgender and Gender Diverse Children and Adolescents. While surveys estimate that less than 1% of teens identify as transgender, we know that these teens have high rates of depression, anxiety, eating disorders, substance abuse, self-harm, and suicide, making it important for physicians to be well-informed about their role in offering a safe and inclusive place for these youth. So we're really happy that you could join us to talk about some of these issues. I'm so happy to be here. Um, Everyone is seeing numbers rise uh, of these youth coming for care, either in the primary care uh, field or in the endocrine spectrum. And um, so I know that if you haven't seen some of this already, you're probably going to be seeing more and more. So I think that it's really important that we all kind of build our skill set to become really familiar with the terminology and the, um, you know, the open door and respectful ways that we can treat these youth. Great. And if people haven't listened to it yet, we did a podcast a little while ago with Linda Hawkins, and we talked about gender and sexuality development. We defined a lot of these terms, so listeners might want to go back and listen to that too, just to get some of those foundations and learn a little bit more about the communication aspect. But today we're going to talk about more of the endocrine issues. So first, tell me a little bit about your clinical practice and how you got into this. Yeah, so I am a pediatric endocrinologist. I certainly do other things other than just uh, treating um, youth who are seeking to gender transition. But uh, actually, it was kind of a coincidence. I began, I trained at Duke, so for residency and fellowship and med school too, actually. So I was there for quite some time. And I got no training in uh, this field, which is interesting because now they have a fantastic program that has grown in the time since I have left. So I began my new job, and it turns out that uh, the doctor who I was sort of taking over for as he was leaving had a large population of transgender patients that he was taking care of. And this was 2013, and it was fairly new um, for the pediatric endocrinology field. I know a number of people sort of had a handful, and Dr. Norman Spack was breaking ground long before that um, in Boston. Mm -hmm. Um, But it wasn't something that, you know, most pediatric, there wasn't programs in every uh, area like there are now. But he gave me kind of a two-day crash course um, in the time right before he left to take an industry job. And uh, in that time, he had a number of his patients come, so I met them, and I went from knowing almost nothing. He gave me a pile of papers, like 10 inches high, with all the guidelines and articles that existed at that time. And, um, you know, when I started, I was slightly terrified, I'll be honest, because, again, there weren't many providers doing it, and there I was with very little Mm -hmm. um, experience. But that was now six years ago, and since then, I've treated, you know, I think the count is over 80 patients, and I am starting to feel very comfortable in that field, and 
I am very happy to say that there are many, many more resources. There is so much more research going into this. There are really um, well-written guidelines that have been updated uh, most recently in 2017, so I no longer feel mm -hmm. like I'm completely swimming at sea. And it's been a Great. fascinating and rewarding uh, part of my work. So you're going to take your two-day crash course and your six years of experience and give it all to us in a few minutes. <laughs> I will try. So primary care providers are in a unique position to inquire about gender development as part of routine well-child care and to be a trusted source of support and information for patients and families. How do you suggest that we start a conversation about gender identity with a patient in a way that's not judgmental? You know, that's really hard. And the funny thing is, as I was thinking about this question, I will admit that it doesn't come up for me very often right. because as the person that's already referred to, it's already happened. However, um, you know, the guidelines really suggest really screening everyone, especially once they reach that adolescent age, and to make sure that you ask the question by prefacing it to everybody um, during that interview that's confidential with the teen. You know, we explore these issues of everyone because they're so common. Do you have any questions regarding gender identity? Do you have a preferred name or pronoun that you use? And as long as you make it clear that this is not a discriminatory question, it's being asked of everyone, you should feel free to kind of open the doors to that conversation. Because again, the rates are becoming high enough that it's probably, it really is an important thing to address really at every patient visit. Right, great. Those are great tips and things that Linda Hawkins also echoed when we talked to her too. So um, there are a lot of medical interventions that can be offered to youth who identify as transgender, but the decision about whether or not to initiate gender affirmative treatment is highly personal and involves careful consideration of many factors, things that are medical, personal, psychological, and legal. So understanding that there's no prescribed path and that the options vary by patient, we're going to try to discuss some of the ways in which we can help affirm a youth's gender medically. So what are some of the risks and benefits of using things like gonadotropin-releasing hormones to suppress puberty? So I guess the first thing I will say is that uh, I do not work alone. So as a pediatric endocrinologist, it would be ridiculous for me to feel like I was the decider for each patient as to, well, you seem like you're ready for blockers. So I guess it's just very important to make sure you are part of a team and that the patient has a long and stable relationship with some kind of qualified um, therapeutic professional, whether that be a licensed clinical social worker um, or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, um, because really the deep work of what they want has to be done there before they even get to me. Right. But once they have come into the office and if they've really explored things with their family, with um, their you know mental health provider, um, and they're looking, we, we kind of start by talking about, I usually open it by saying, well, what are you looking for? Because right. number one, they've usually done a lot of research, so they usually have some concrete ideas. So for me not to let them explain, sure. it doesn't usually make sense. But also because I want to know, some patients actually, it really varies. Blockers, the use of blockers depends a lot on age and what is bothering the patient. Mm -hmm. So again, this is very individualized. If you have a 10-year-old who is was assigned um, male at birth and is expressing as a female um, who is desiring eventually to transition to female, but right now is just very dysphoric and upset about burgeoning characteristics of male puberty. Now that would be on the early end at 10, but it certainly can happen. Right. Um, then we address that and we talk about what the options would be for that. A 10-year-old is not going to be a candidate for any kind of cross-hormone therapy, but we certainly can use things like Depolupron, um, you know, in the three-month formulation, or a suprelin implant even to suppress those pituitary hormones and give them some time to kind of decide and, and experience life without that um, mm -hmm. stress of the going through the puberty that they um, 
that is making them very distressed at that time. You know, treating or not treating is not a neutral decision at that point. I think particularly in my transgender females, because once the body has seen androgens and has gone through that change, it's very hard to reverse those characteristics. Mm. Um, so, you know, you don't take the decision lightly either way. One thing we always um, talk about, even when we're just beginning the use of, of blocker treatments at that young age, uh, is fertility. Um, right. Many parents actually are surprised when I bring that up, if it's a you know 10-year-old who was assigned male or female at birth, mm -hmm. because it's just not something that crosses their mind at that, that age point. Right. Um, but if you do go on a path where you're going to start blockade and then bridge to cross-hormone therapy, you're going to lose that potential opportunity for things like you know freezing cryopreservation of eggs eggs or mm -hmm. sperm. So that actually has to be something that's discussed as well, just so everybody knows what they're getting into. Now, that said, giving GnRH agonist or blocker therapy is reversible. Mm -hmm. As you all know, we use right. that in precocious puberty. Some right. people even try to use it in growth, which I'm not necessarily advocating, right. uh, but they do. Um, and while they're, those are not side effect free medications, they are thought to be quite reversible over the long period. So the patient's own pubertal mechanisms would return should that be their choice once they go off of medication or the implants removed. You mentioned a few times cross-sex hormones. So these can allow adolescents who have initiated puberty to develop secondary sex characteristics of the opposite biologic sex. So if an adolescent starts one of these hormones, what effects are reversible and which are not? It really depends by gender. So my transgender females, so they were assigned male at birth, mm -hmm. typically need blockers first and then can bridge um, with estrogen uh, various preparations to transition um, to a more female appearance and develop breasts. Once you have breast tissue, it's not going to disappear. Mm -hmm. I would say most of the other effects of estrogen are fairly reversible. I mean, there's not, you know, an ink, your voice doesn't go up once right. it's gone back down. Um, it, it's sort of harder to, to reverse the characteristics of that, um, of the androgen. So in the other direction, which by the way, um, I don't know if listeners are aware, but we have about a two to one predominance of trans males right now in the okay. U.S. So the uh, you know the picture that comes to everyone's mind when they when they hear transgender right. is a, a assigned male at birth patient who wishes to transition to female. That's actually not most of what we're seeing. Okay. Uh, so in our trans males, um, once you start on testosterone and do get changes such as the voice uh, lowering and some you know slight coarsening of some facial mm -hmm. features, and more jaw prominence, body hair changes, those are pretty irreversible okay. changes. So we do want to be um, very careful that patients and families understand that it's not really easy to, to, to dive <laughs> diving right. and try it. Reverse. That said, the changes are not rapid. So, you know, a lot of advocates say if patients really wish to transition, but there's some uncertainty to go very slowly with the hormones, because if the patient in a very rare circumstances were to figure out that actually the effects were not bringing them what they wanted, then, you know, the effects of a very stop. low dose of several months of testosterone is unlikely to cause much long-lasting effect. Okay. So, yeah, that's good to think about. I mean, it makes sense because in puberty, in general, things yes, don't happen overnight. exactly. So it's the same as a, a cis teenage boy. They're not going to, you know, right. you know, the first signs are, are fairly subtle, and right. then all of a sudden things change, but that's right. not until a couple, a year or two in. Right, right. Yeah. It's not overnight, which is helpful for trans patients to know, too, that when they start these hormones, that the effects aren't going to happen overnight. That tends to not be what the patients prefer. Right. Um, <laughs> right. Which is interesting. Um, you know, I've had patients as young as 13, say, who are trans males, complain about dysphoria related to the voice. 
And I think to myself, well, have you looked around? How、right. many cis eighth grade boys have a deep baritone? Not very many of them. So usually the teens themselves are eager for as much change as possible in as little time.、Right. Um, but you know that's how we counsel them. We say, no, this is puberty. You're、right. going through puberty.、Right. Puberty is not rapid, and for the best result,、um, it is best to go slow. And that's both from a mental and、um, you know physical standpoint. So in a transgender adolescent whose natal gender is female. Menstruation may cause distress. So, what are the best options for suppressing menstruation and preventing pregnancy? So, how might this be complicated with all the hormones that we were just talking about? Well,、uh, blocker therapy is not a foolproof birth control method,、mm-hmm. um, nor is testosterone actually.、Mm-hmm. So, if you give testosterone alone, you In many patients, do suppress menses within six to twelve months, and、um, depending on how you escalate doses, I find this really varies between patients. So you don't necessarily need something else, depending on the age of the patient and what they're looking for.、Um, medications like depo-lupron will shut down. You know, there'll be an initial bleed, but then they will completely shut down menses.、Mm-hmm. However, they're not foolproof birth control.、Right. Um, Depo-provera can actually be used in some patients. In fact, if there are patients that are very disturbed by their menses, but the parents aren't. Ready to support a, a permanent transition?、Mm-hmm. Then sometimes that's a nice option just to allow them to at least feel get freedom from those cycles without、mm-hmm. causing any you know further feminization. So so those are kind of the mainstays of what we what we use. Great. So beyond medical approaches, what are some of the other important elements of providing gender affirming care to our patients? So I'm thinking about things like. You already mentioned some mental health services, but what about things in the electronic record or advocacy, insurance, and and things like that? Well, I think we're in a very、um, transitional time right now where things do seem like they're getting better for our patients.、Um, you're absolutely right. The medical record is very important because misgendering patients or calling them not by their preferred name, for example,、mm-hmm. in waiting rooms or if their laboratory requisitions don't have the proper name printed on them, that's very distressing for our patients. From an insurance perspective, you know that really varies by plan. I will say again, things are getting better. When I first began, black. Were rarely covered, and we had to rely heavily on patient assistance.、Mm-hmm. Um, now it's covered about half the time, perhaps even more. And blocker therapy is very expensive, so that's、right. quite a testament. I think it really does help that we have, you know, the Endocrine Society wrote some very firm guidelines that really、uh, detail the best pathway of care for these patients.、Um, and insurance companies do tend to respond to those kinds of expert guidelines and, and studies showing benefit. So I think the more of that 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 Comes out,、uh, the more helpful it will be to our patients. It's great that the AAP and the Endocrine Society have been making these policy statements, and I know they're doing a lot of advocacy. And we really appreciate having their support. At what age should we refer to an endocrinologist? So, is this、uh, an age-based decision about when to refer to you? Are we looking at their Tanner staging? Is it just based on the patient's desire to see the endocrinologist, and how soon is too soon? I guess. Yeah, I think well, part of that depends on your comfort level as a clinician. Because if a primary care provider or an adolescent medicine provider gets very comfortable with this and may not want to use all the medicines, but really understands、um, the ways that the patient can get support in the community, is really connected with affirming mental health care providers. 
-hmm. The patient may not necessarily need to see endocrinology early. Sometimes I think it just is helpful for the parents to get some answers. I've even had some parents of very young children kind of request hormone testing. Mm -hmm. And even though there really isn't much um, DSD kind of pathology mixed in with transgender, I often will kind of at least explain that or be able to explain, you know, how the anatomy is normal for their assigned Mm -hmm. gender and that there's not necessarily. So I think that they get some useful information out of the encounter even when the child is young. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, when it comes to a timeline of actually starting treatments, um, most uh, the, actually the guidelines are pretty firm on not recommending any kind of preventative puberty blocker. So mm-hmm. you wouldn't want to take an eight-year-old and say, well, you know, uh, to prevent you from starting puberty, here's your depilopron. Right. Um, right. You really do want to wait until that patient is 10 or 2, 10 or 3. I usually, um, I, I think there's no time that's too soon, honestly, just mm-hmm. so the patient can get some information and, and resources and what might be up ahead. And I know, you know, not everywhere, but a number of centers, including um, yours where you are, have these multidisciplinary gender clinics, which right. can be really helpful for, um, for the families in terms of getting support and information. So err on the side of referring. We are happy to see these patients. Great. And as you said, there's so many other pieces to it. So um, if they are seeing an endocrinologist, they're probably also seeing the psychologist and other people. And it's a process in terms of coming to the decision of gender affirming treatments. So the family and the patient may need time to digest all the information that you're giving them too. Absolutely. So we're fortunate to have a gender and sexuality development clinic at CHOP, as you mentioned. But For the provider listeners um, who don't have this type of resource locally, where can they find referral information for endocrinologists and psychologists and other providers who will provide this support and kind of appropriate gender affirming care? Um, I think the best place to start would be to look at the local like LGBTQ resources because almost every city or nearby metropolitan area is going to have something there and likely that will point you in the direction. I will say that we are still at an era where a lot of patients do have to travel to get their transgender care. I know that I see patients from, you know, two, three hours away um, just because they're just aren't other providers um, in those areas. So I would start with the community organizations and look from there. And then again, the WPATH website um, can list some providers as well. Great. So we heard a lot about your day job, but I know you do a lot of other things. So you have a blog, the Shoebox blog, right? I do. And you have a podcast, yes. Best of Both Worlds. So tell us a little bit about those and why you're also tackling all of these things outside of your clinical time. It's just been really fun. I started a blog when I was a second year medical student on an away rotation, and I it was 2004. Mm-hmm. Blogs were not particularly that much of a thing. It was like a little blog spot journal. <laughs> and I found I loved it. It was just this nice release. I think initially my audience was my friend Vicky and my parents <laughs> and my then boyfriend, now husband, um, <laughs> of over 10 years. So um, I just found that writing was an amazing outlet. I think it helped me get through residency. And um, as I've continued to you know, grow in my career, there's been more and more things that I've become passionate about talking about. So right. the blog has morphed in many directions. Um, I now write a lot about work and family. And in that process, I kind of met online a woman named Laura Vanderkam, who's a writer. She wrote a book called 168 Hours that I really liked back in 2009 or so. Mm -hmm. I began reading her blog. And so we were kind of blog friends. And then in 2017, I said, I was listening to a lot of podcasts because I was doing commuting. I was like, I kind of want to start a podcast about work and motherhood because I listen to all these kind of homemaker type podcasts and didn't 
feel like there was anybody doing one for me. Um, and she responded, hey, let's do it together. And I felt like that was a great counterpoint because she has you know, mm-hmm. speaking experience and a writing audience and just a great voice and um, an empowering you know, style when it comes and to her thoughts about women mom. and another working mother. Um, and so we are now nearly 100 episodes in and that's been a really fun adventure. It's yeah. called The Best of Both Worlds. So It's one of my favorites. Thank you. <laughs> so I, I guess... Talking about work-life balance is also one of those hot topics. So, and it's, I don't, some people don't even like to call it balance anymore, right? There's like integration and other things that you can call it. So the question that I get asked the most is sort of, how do you do it all? And you probably get that question all the time. I don't love that question because like you said, when it's something that you love and you're passionate about, it doesn't feel like you're having to juggle things because they're all things that you equally love. But I mean, how do you feel about that? who does it all, right? <laughs> do men do it all? I right. would argue no, but women don't either. No one can yeah. do it all. I do a lot of really fun and rewarding things. I do find that I am able to get enough work done during a fairly normal work week to feel like I'm making a contribution clinically and I I feel lucky to, to be in that position. I have an amazing um, child care provider at home who makes things really run smoothly and makes it so I'm not doing a lot of household chores in my downtime but actually able to focus on my kids. I'm a huge proponent of outsourcing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I've just had the philosophy, you really only get to do this once, so there's really no need for self-sacrifice here in this journey. You should let yourself do the things you enjoy. Your kids are still going to love you if you're not hovering over them every moment of the day, at least I think so thus far. <laughs> and I think that, you know, culturally there are a lot of myths that are preventing women from really enjoying themselves um, by... Um, doing the things they love both at work and, and at home. Um, and I hope that with time we can conquer some of those. Mm-hmm. I think your podcast does a great job of trying to tackle a lot of the, like you said, the myths and issues that working moms face. So thanks for doing that. Where can we find you? And so where can listeners find you? Yeah. So on the blog, well, they could find me in real life at Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital in Hollywood, Florida, where I work as a pediatric endocrinologist and also uh, mentor residents as part of our residency program. You can find me on my blog, theshoebox.com, T-H-E-S-H-U-B-O-X.com. And then the podcast is called The Best of Both Worlds Podcast, and it's available on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever. Great. Well, thank you so much for uh, pointing us to all those amazing resources and for taking such great care of the patients that, um, that you do and for joining us today and teaching us a little bit more about transgender medicine. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.